This is the show for missionary disciples who worship Christ in the Eucharist and serve Him in their neighbor, for whom the words of the Creed reverberate through their daily activity. This is the show for those like you and me who make the conscious choice to follow Christ outside the walls. Well, if you were with us last week, you know there's a question kind of rattling around in my head, uh, and and we're going to stay on this theme for just a little while. And the question is this, what does the church look like on the other side of quarantine? We've been in this holding pattern for a number of months as we've not been sure how long this quarantine is going to persist. And, uh, and just about the time we figured things were opening back up and we were going to get back to normal, um, we, we see a spike again and things begin to shut back down or at least slow down. And, and regardless, I think it's becoming obvious that even if all the restrictions were lifted tomorrow, church would not be the same. Now, the church is unchanging. The church is going to remain and going to remain strong. But what about our particular experience of church? And that, I think, out of necessity, is going to be changing. For a long time, we've been kind of in a holding pattern, hoping for normal to return. But now I think that we have the opportunity here to uh, to take the time to reimagine what it is for us to live out this life of faith, both in an institutional capacity and in our individual lives. We have this opportunity to say, you know what, there's a lot that is good in the way that we have worshipped, in liturgy, in the expressions and the, the, the rituals of our faith. There's a lot that, that we miss, and there's a lot that's good. But there are some things that, if we're honest with ourselves, we wish that we as a church could do better. Um, whatever that happens to be in your particular context, in your particular parish, we can look at things and say, you know, as I look at the early church, as I look at the Great Commission, uh, as I hear the words of Christ to go into all the world and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded, and lo, I'm with you always to the end of the age, I think we can say, probably universally here, that our experience of church does not completely line up with our understanding of the Great Commission, with our understanding of the purpose of the church. And so this right now is an opportunity for us to say, where are the areas that we have been maybe a little weak in, and what can we do right now, individually and institutionally, to strengthen those weak points so that moving forward into the future, we can bring about a renewed sense of the gospel to our world. Because the church does not exist for programs. The church does not exist for even our own happiness and, and preferences to be made and to be met. The church exists for the worship of God and the evangelization of the world, the sanctification of the world. So if this is the case, if this is what we are for, we have to take some time to say, hmm, there are some things that we can do better. And there's no end to the discussion here. I mean, we can talk about how we equip families to take care of the domestic church. We can talk about how we equip our, 
our whole parish to be involved in the corporal and the spiritual works of mercy. Uh, I'm so proud of our church, Catholic Charities, and the the various um, ministries that are present for for engaging with the world. But I, I do sometimes see a lack of equipping of people to actually go out and participate in those ministries, at least in the capacity that if this is something that helps with our sanctification, then we ought to be equipping the whole church to be active in these works of mercy, because it's not only something for the world, but it's also something for our own spiritual growth and spiritual maturity. So I would love to see in this post, post-quarantine church uh, a, a renewed emphasis not only on family and growing in spiritual devotion and practice there, not only in the the corporal and spiritual works of mercy specifically as seen by uh, enumerated by Christ in Matthew 25. Um, I'd like to see the church equipped to handle brokenness. And to be fair, there are parishes that do this very well. And there are certainly programs that do this very well, that recognize the needs that people have that meet them where they are, uh, that allow them to move at their own pace and that, that really nurture them and take care of them. But this is meant to be something that's core to who we are as the church, and it's not as widespread as it should be, to the point that we don't even necessarily acknowledge brokenness in our midst. Uh, I grew up in in a tradition that wasn't Catholic, but that put a lot of emphasis on holiness, on doing things well and doing things right. And, and that's a noble goal, but one of the things that it leads us to as humans uh, is it leads us to hide our faults. Because if we're meant to be perfect, and if we're meant to, to grow in holiness, then we can't admit our failings. And we have to put on a good face so that everyone sees how good we are and how, how strong Christians we are. Now, Catholicism has, I think, an antidote to this. Um, we have the confessional. We say, right, I'm standing in line and you can see that I have failed again and I need to go to confession and I need to be brought back into the state of grace um, because that's something that's important. However, for whatever reason, I think that there are some vestiges of this idea that um, any show of weakness uh, somehow takes away from from the fact that we are Christians, right? I can't I can't show my weakness out front. And I don't know if that's cultural. I don't know if that uh, is something specifically in those parishes that pursue holiness more. Um, I know that it was part of my experience growing up, and I see it today that people are stigmatized. We stigmatize ourselves when we experience brokenness, but we certainly... Um, look askance at someone else who is going through difficulty. And we are called by God to be ministers of reconciliation. We're called to care for the wounded and the broken, not just with, uh, with physical ailments, but also with spiritual ailments and with emotional ailments and with mental ailments. We are meant to be those who go out and bring healing and so I, this is something that, if, as I imagine a post-quarantine church, I imagine a church 
that's a little bit more comfortable with the fact that all of us have areas and times and seasons of brokenness and to be willing to meet people where they are, not just by shuffling them off to a program, but willing to sit with them in the midst of that brokenness and saying, I am here with you and for you. I am going to sit here and not say a word. I'm just going to be here in case you need me. And I don't know how we get there. So this is a conversation I'd like to have. If you have experience with this, if this is something that is near and dear to your heart, let's talk about it on social media. You can go over to my Facebook, facebook.com slash step outside the walls. On Twitter, the handle's at outside the walls and talk about what your dream of post-quarantine church is. What does it look like? What's your experience with walking with those who are wounded, walking with those who have gone through brokenness? Because this needs to be a central part of church moving forward. And that this mere programs aren't enough. We each need to be equipped, empowered by the Holy Spirit to be these ministers of reconciliation, to be the one who helps and brings healing in the midst of brokenness and anxiety and stress and trauma. So this is what we're going to talk about today. We're going to try to break the stigma a little bit. Um, We're right now in the midst of this quarantine, and in some ways that's been highlighting this even more, as uh, I've seen some people who have gone through the isolation and and really recognized some things that they've been carrying for a long time. I've seen other people who are watching the isolation and seeing how everyone is treating it and saying how awful it is and realizing that this has been their life for a long time and seeing their need for community and not really knowing how to go about it because of the trauma and the brokenness they've experienced. And so there are a number of people who are wrestling all anew with this isolation. And that's one of the great challenges for our church, not only as we come out of this and reimagine what our our mission is as a church, but also for us right now as members of the body of Christ to be aware of those things that are going on around us so that we can, in the words of Christ in, in Matthew 25, that we can do to the least of these as we would do to Christ, that we would care for the needs of the ostracized and the broken and the wounded. And so to help us understand a little bit more about that, give us some insight into how we might do that, both now as we are experiencing this quarantine and as a church as we move out of it. We're talking with Kathy Lenz, who is a um, a lay Dominican out of the central province in the U.S., and she helps run a program called Gather My Lost Sheep. Kathy, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. So just before we started, you were telling me a little bit about um, how you first got into this work with trauma, and I wanted to to bring that question back around as now we are sharing it with others. Perfect. I, you know, it's one of those things where it comes from my lived experience. Uh, unfortunately, I am an adult survivor of years of child abuse. Um, it is something that I have lived with um, in an odd kind of way because I, I like lived through it through my, I, to 17 years old, I left home. Um, I went to college, I paid my own way. I, and I, from there on in, I was like, you know, I'm just gonna live my life. And it was all I can do to keep 
any of the past stuff down, have it, you know, just keep that out of the way. Let's not bring that up, but just leave it alone. And it was an interesting thing because one of the things that happened along the way, I had an opportunity to get started with a program that's called uh, Lord Teach Me to Pray. It is a program that helps people learn how to pray with scripture using the Ignatian exercises. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, get, I actually help people around our state in Wisconsin help them get started with it as a leader. And in the process of doing that prayer work, because part of it is really becoming clear about what it is that keeps you from God. Because it's not God that's moving. That would be us. Right. And I remember so clearly the Lord saying to me, I'm so glad you're doing this. So let's <laughs> talk about your abuse. And I was like, are you kidding me? <laughs> no, we're not doing that. Leave that alone. We and he's like, no, no, no. You wanted to know what it is that keeps you from me. And, and I'm like, yeah, but. And he's like, I didn't force you to take the class. I didn't force you to do anything. So this is your opportunity. So are you going to talk with me or not? Mm-hmm. And in 2008, I started on that journey to really start to deal and work through that process of um, trauma. And I would be the first to tell you that recovery from trauma is not for the weak. It's a tough road. It means facing things that you would rather forget about. But because if you, and and it's always amazing to me because I've had priests and other people say to me, well, just let it go. And I thought, you don't get this, do you? I mean, it's not that I'm hanging on to it. It is hanging on to me. And until it's actually processed and dealt with, it will continue to hang on to me. And so I, you know, in that walk, it's all that time of, of realizing things about how you're coping, those coping mechanisms. They got you through when you were a child, at least in my case, or whatever point it is that, that you've experienced that trauma. But you realize it isn't working for you anymore. Right. And that's that hard reality. And there's some parts of it you're just not even aware that you're doing it. I want to talk a little bit about this idea of uh, of the behaviors that come out of experiencing trauma. Because for someone who's not experienced trauma, there is this this sense of, hey, well, just let it go. Or just just do this simple thing that uh, that helps me get over the things I've gone through. And and there isn't a, an understanding or awareness of of the lasting impact that trauma leaves. It's not just a single event, but it shapes uh, the course as as a river is shaped by the banks. Right? It it shapes the course of the direction of the way that you would respond to things that other people might not even notice. So as you're working in this way, uh, both in your own experience and as you help others to to be able to assist and to help people in trauma. What are some of the things that you would recommend to them to help them understand the um, the shape or the framework of trauma so that they can begin to assist someone in extricating themselves from that? The biggest thing I would tell to you, the, the telltale signs that I've come to realize that I thought I was hiding well is that I overreaction to something that it happens. Mm-hmm. Um. I, there's an example that, that talks about, you know, if you come up onto someone and you just lightly touch their shoulder and they suddenly whip around going, don't touch me, don't you touch me. 
I mean, that's kind of an overtop reaction. Right. And the natural thing that people do as human beings is to say, what's wrong with him or her? And that's actually the wrong question. The question to consider is what's been done to them Mm -hmm. that would have them respond in that way? Because oftentimes if you understand the context of what has happened to them before, their behavior won't seem all that out of place anymore. Yeah. But because we don't know that at any moment, like what it is that's going to trigger somebody, that's why it seems so like, whoa, that is out of the top. What is going on? And just, it's one of those moments to be with. Um, I mean, I guess I could think of the example of the very first time that I re- experienced a flashback. Mm-hmm. It's that moment of, because of what happens in the brain and the way that information is stored, if information comes into your senses, the first place it goes is the amygdala. And the amygdala's job is to keep you safe. Right. And so as information comes in, it quickly looks and it says, have I seen this before? And if I have, was it dangerous? And if it thinks it's even remotely close to something it's seen before, it will spring into action. And what I think of is I had an incident as a child where I spilled a glass of water. And I was working with two colleagues on a project and... You know, this is like the, the, the providence of God. It turns out both of them were therapists, though that wasn't why we were working together. But I spilled a glass of water on our papers, and I completely freaked out. Hmm. And the one therapist was like grabbing, uh, cleaning up everything, and the other one was just like, grabbed my arm and just said to me, Kathy, we are in Chicago. I need you to look at me. Hmm. You do not need to keep apologizing. You are perfectly safe. But at that, mind, at that moment, my mind was not that I was in Chicago. My mind was, I was two years old, and all hell was about to break loose because I spilled a glass of water. Yeah. And if you had asked me about that beforehand, I would have I've said, like, what are you talking about? It, could, it never would have even occurred to me. But in that moment, my mind remembered. Well, I think- and so that's why when, it's an over-the-top response, and it's because of what one has experienced already. Right. And it's so important for us, specifically in a time like this, where we are all very quick to judge, because all of us do that thing that you mentioned of, where have I seen this before so that I can categorize it quickly and then move on with my life? And the response is, as you said, uh, kind of built into us by nature. But um, but that's something that for those of us who have not experienced trauma, it's so important for us to act in virtue and that virtue being reading a situation in the most charitable way possible rather than looking at them and going, wow, that's an overreaction. How dare you? Uh, or feeling somehow offended by an overreaction to, to look at that and examine it charitably and uh, maybe even pray for a spirit of discernment to say, how do I best handle this situation for the good of all involved especially the person who is now experiencing what seems to be a very large reaction. Mm-hmm. And it's that moment of like helping them to calm without telling one of the things that never helps is to tell someone who's <laughs> anxious and upset, calm down. <laughs> Stop what you do. Do that. <laughs> If they could do that, they would do that themselves. Thank you very much. Well, so we're, we're talking again today with Kathy Lenz, and I love that that story that you told of the two counselors in the room. Of course, they've seen this uh, in their practice, but the person didn't tell you, calm down. What they did was bring you to a place where you 
could be calm. And so it wasn't, hey, you calm down. You you do all of the things that you need to do. It was, let me come alongside you and bring you to a place of safety and calm. And that's the biggest thing that we can do. And it's part of why we want to talk to churches about becoming trauma-informed, mm-hmm. providing trauma-informed care. So what does that look like um, from, because most of the time when we think about helping churches do something. We think about it in a programmatic kind of a way. Uh, oh, well, we have a program for this. We have a program for that. You can go over here and attend these sessions. And and that's kind of the way that we have imagined church for so long. But in many places in the United States and perhaps around the world, that paradigm is going to have to shift as churches are going to have to engage the world differently as the virus has reshaped our society. So what are some of the things that the church can do to be trauma aware uh, outside of just um, a Wednesday night class that everyone goes to? Well, part of it is, is getting training for everybody who's on your ministry team, Mm -hmm. be it the lady, be it the staff, be it the clergy, be it, you know, the folks at the diocese. And that, came across very loudly to me one time when I was doing training for some bishops and priests and they happened to come upon somebody asked me said what do we do when someone has mental illness now granted that wasn't my focus at that time but I said I happen to know the answer so let's talk Mm -hmm. there are a couple of programs that I would encourage folks to think about one of them is called mental health first aid and what I said to those priests I said how many of you know CPR And they were like, well, yeah, I know that. I said, does knowing CPR make you a medical expert? Well, no. I said, oh, so you're keeping people alive until the medical professionals can get there. Well, mental health first aid does the exact same thing. It's a protocol that you follow to make sure that people are safe. And if they are safe, then how can we get them to medical care and support them in that effort? It won't make you a professional therapist or anything else. Because frankly, most of our priests don't have that training, but it does give them some tools they can use so they can sit with them, be with them until they can get the help that they need. And that's a great time to also be think, knowing ahead of time, what are some of your resources out there? Mm-hmm. I'll be honest, there's times where I've talked to priests in the confessional and they'll say, you need to go to this and this and this. And I said, Father, I don't mean to be disrespectful. I really don't. But can you tell me exactly what street and what phone number of that is? Because mm-hmm. you act like there's all this help out there, and it doesn't actually exist. Yeah. Um, so it's really that, because if I look for a Catholic therapist, you can go to catholictherapist.org or .com, one of the two. And when I looked for ones in Wisconsin, there were narrowed to be had. Yeah. And so, because I, I was looking for how do I have somebody who understands my faith journey of where I'm going? Well, and, and I see also in this the programs that you're you're talking about. They're not ends in of themselves. They are an equipping thing for then us to be able to uh, to provide that for as a ministry for those in our in our parish and in our community. Uh, I think of um, so often many people are in, in the church are looking at how do we become more hospitable? And they look at uh, having greeters. They look at all of these different things uh, at the front door, uh, which, which I agree with. Um, but there's also the need to have people aware of people who are in trauma, to, to be able to recognize it, to see the signs, to, to come alongside, to assist. 
and to be there for them in the midst of that trauma and the, the, the midst of that experience, because the church is for the poor and the poor in spirit and those who are on the edges. And the church needs to be there and accompany them in the midst of that. I want to give you two stories real quick. I got asked to speak at a statewide conference for people living with mental health challenges. And I was on a session talking about peers. And I chose to take my opportunity and my platform to talk about the church and how the church could come with you. Because what the research shows is that when people have challenges with their mental health, the first place they go is the church, not to medical providers, to the church. And I had two rooms of about 45 people each. And what those participants told me was, you're spot on. That's exactly where we went. And then they went on to say, and let me tell you how your Jesus people treated us. And I heard horror story after horror story of things that they were told. And they're like, to listen to two rooms of people say to me, nature is my God now. That I would never step foot in your Christ church again. And I remember thinking to myself, Lord, well, I mean, I'm sure there's a reason why you wanted me to see this. And I just listen to them. And it was actually interesting. After I finished, someone came up to me and she goes, I don't know if you realize what you just did. And I said, tell me more. What what are you thinking? And she said, you just provided a whole lot of people healing. And she said, you listen to them. You didn't tell them they were wrong. You didn't give them a lecture on what, how things are. You were with them, you listened to them, and you gave them from the heart, I am so sorry that happened to you. That is not who God is, Mm -hmm. and that is not what should have happened. Yeah. And it's been it was interesting because I I took that opportunity and I went on to create um with a retreat center that was working with uh, uh gatherings on mental health, specifically how can churches do better in helping support people. And what struck me about that is that as we were finishing, there were comments on the evaluations. And they said, I had a couple that said, I was at your workshop where you'd spoke before. And when I saw this in the paper, I realized she isn't letting go of this. Hmm. And a couple of others said to me, if this is what Christ is like, if what you're doing is what Christ is like, I think I'd like to give this Jesus another try. Yeah. What, what churches can I go to? I mean, that's what it really needs to be, is to truly be with folks in that setting. Mm-hmm. We're talking today with Kathy Lenz, and she's giving us a much-needed perspective on assisting those who have experienced trauma. This, I think, is one of the areas that we need to grow in as we come back from quarantine and reimagine church. Join the ongoing conversation over at facebook.com slash step outside the walls. On Twitter, the handle's at outside the walls. Share your opinions and your experiences with me there as we talk about caring for those who have experienced trauma. There's more to come right after this. You're listening to Outside the Walls with TL.
Welcome back to Outside the Walls, where we explore the implications of our belief on our daily life. I'm your host, TL. So glad that you're here. We're talking today with Kathy Lenz. She is a national trainer and speaker and a lay Dominican in the central province, central uh, province of the U.S. She runs a program called Gather My Lost Sheep that deals with uh, trauma and mental health. Now, there is a stigma around mental health, but uh, there's something that we all ought to be aware of. Um, all of us have mental health, yes? Uh, just like we all yeah. have health, we're healthy or we're not healthy. We're on this spectrum. I am somewhere kind of in the middle as I could stand to lose a few pounds and tone a little bit of muscle. Um, you know, our health is on a spectrum. Some days we feel better than others. Some days we get a little cough. Uh, some days we get knocked out by the flu or something of the sort. Uh, well, the same can be true uh, in our our spirits and our spiritual health and in our mental health. And so I, I had just so far a great conversation between the uh, between the break there, talking with Kathy about the spectrum of mental health and and our the, our task, as it were, as a church to help destigmatize that because we are a people of faith who believe in the healing and restorative power of the Holy Spirit, who believe that, that God has invaded our world and our lives uh, for his purposes. And if we believe that about our physicality and if we believe that about our spirits, then we ought to also believe that God is here to engage with us in our mental health as well. So Kathy, thank you again for joining us today. You're welcome. So let's talk a little bit about this this spectrum uh, to help destigmatize it. Well, it's it's really helping people understand that, like on one far end, we we have people who are perfectly healthy in their mental health, but we also have some folks who may be a little bit further over who are more angst, and likely we're going to see that happening right now during the whole pandemic piece. Um, they're having trouble sleeping at night. They're having trouble focusing. They're all of those kind of challenges coming up. And it continues all the way over to the far right side where mental illness is the, the case, where people are having trouble just doing their basic functioning, remembering to shower, remembering to change your clothes. All of that can go away when people are struggling under mental illness. But it's not a done deal kind of situation. Just because you're on one side of the spectrum doesn't mean you could be, couldn't be someplace else by next week. It's a shifting thing. And I mentioned that because what I was warned and told is that if I talk about this, people will automatically assume you're stupid, Kathy. Anything that you know, the fact that you do training nationally and work with all these organizations around the world facilitating conversations None of that will be considered anymore because, you know, you also struggle. Mm -hmm. and, and it's one of the things that the – I've had doctors telling me I'm high-functioning. Hmm. I had a, a friend of mine say, Kathy, that's like the worst of all worlds. <laughs> you still suffer, but because you do so well in so many other places, when you do fall down, people are incredibly harsh with you. Because why aren't you getting this right? Why aren't you handling this? And so they like forget that while well, you still are dealing with things. Right. And so that's part of the challenge along the way. And it's that opportunity to really look and say, okay, wait a minute. 
again, can we assume the best of what people were intending to do? No, that really becomes the question along the way. And I think it's interesting that people are following right now during the pandemic, and they're saying some of the people who were already diagnosed with mental health are doing better than some of the people who are now experiencing mental health challenges. People trying to work on their coping skills have been having to deal with this for so long, and they're like, for once in my life, I'm actually prepared to do, <laughs> do for the worst. <laughs> Literally, that's, that's what they're finding. Whereas other people who are now experiencing mental health challenges, this is not a known territory to them at all, and they don't know what coping skills they should use. Mm -hmm. And so they're far more panicked. They're seeing the online options going wild right now during the pandemic. So again, it's the, what can we do to check in with people? And when I, what I love is I was doing a project with a gather, gathering on mental health. Deacon Tom Lampert came up from Chicago. He helped start the Chicago Ministry for Mental Illness and also started within the National Catholic Partnership on Disabilities. He helped start the mental illness section. Uh, he himself has a daughter who deals with mental health challenges. And he says, as a deacon, I see this all the time. He says, you know, if I talk to the majority of Catholic priests, yeah, they'll take communion to the hospitals, but the vast majority have never been to a mental, a psychiatric ward. That is not where they go. Yeah, this is so important for us as well, because um, we, we have to go to the fringes. We have to go to the places where... Uh, where culture looks and says, we have no place for you, because Christ does have a place for all of us, specifically when we are at the end of our rope, specifically when we don't know exactly how to, to interact with the world. He comes not to fix everything, but to be with us. One of the things I love about your story at the very beginning, as you talked about how you got into this, this work and this ministry, is um, that God was perfectly uh, patient to allow you to have relationship with him in, in as much as you would let him have relationship with you, uh, that he welcomed you to the extent that you would allow yourself to be welcomed. And then there came a time where you're like, God, you know, I, I want more out of this and I, I don't know exactly how to do it. So I'm going to go to this retreat. And then it was there on your impetus and on your reaching out that he says, all right, now let's go into deeper relationship. Let's begin to look at some of these things. And I love this because this is a picture for us of the way we are called to evangelize. Uh, we talk about uh, we are the hands and the feet of Christ. We are the body of Christ. We are the presence uh, and, and the incarnation in a certain way of Christ in this day and in this time. And so the call that we are, um, that we are beckoned to follow is to go and to to act in the way that he would act. And so to invite someone into a relationship insofar as they are willing to go, but not to push or to prod or to accuse or to point, but to say, I am here to be with you as far as you will let me be. And what an impact that has on evangelization what an impact that has on uh, helping a person come to terms with the past, but also Im imbue them with hope for the future. So, Kathy, talk a little bit about um, this, this project that you were doing and helping equip churches, equip priests uh, to 
to minister to those who have experienced mental health issues, whether it be on the very mild end of the spectrum or on the deeper end of the spectrum? Part of what um, we're particularly focusing on right now is I'm working on partway through a book, creating training around trauma-informed care. And so that's the trauma component of it, but some of the other factors play into it along the way. Um, There's one of the things that we talk about in this process is watch your words and watch your judgment. Hmm. Um, I always find it interesting when my anxiety gets the better of me and someone says, Kathy, the majority of what we worry about will never happen. (laughs) And I said, you know, to someone with PTSD, that makes no sense. What I'm worried about has already happened. And what I'm worried is that it will happen again. Yeah. I'm not worried about imaginary things. I'm very clear what happened before. <laughs> right. And it has framed my world in such a way to tell me the world is not safe. Right. So I could really use someone to help remind me that it in fact is. Well, that I really do belong along the way. And, I, and I've been on the flip side of that. I was attending church one day and I guess I admit it. I got there late. You know, call me out. There it is. And so I was sitting in the narthex, and I could hear these two kids and this mom who were up in the front row, and the kids were screaming and carrying on. And I could see all these looks of daggers from people around them. And she grabbed them quickly and ran out into the narthex, and they still couldn't calm down, so she moved them further out and then further out. And finally, they were at the door. And I'm like, Lord, I can see this whole thing happening. What can I do? Help me know what it is I should do. And it was like, get your butt over to there to the door. (laughs) And so I went over there and I said, you know what? In a little bit, we're going to pray the Our Father. Would it be okay if I pray with all of you? Hmm. And the kids stopped screaming and they looked at me and they were like, You'd, you'd like to pray with us? I said, I would love to pray with you if you'd have me. Mm-hmm. And they reached their hands out right away. So I took their hands and we prayed the Our Father together. And I thanked them when we finished. And I said, I just want you to know, I'm so glad you're here. Mm-hmm. And they, they just looked at me and <laughs> I went out and went back to my seat. And it wasn't very long. They're coming back over. Can we sit by you? I said, absolutely. There's plenty of room out here, and I'll get you a chair if we need it. And it was. And we finished up mass, and I said to them, I said, thank you again for sitting with me. I'm going to go inside church for a little bit to pray. So I did that, and I'm praying, and suddenly I hear behind me, that's her, Father, that's her. <laughs> and I turn around, and I look, I'm like, oh, now what? And she's dragging the pastor along with her, along with her kids. She's the one who talked to us. Hmm. And he looked at me, he goes, well, now that I see who it is, it doesn't surprise me. (laughs) And, you know, they were like, well, we have to go. And I said, well, I hope I'll see you again. And the little girl said, goodbye, nice lady. And the priest turned to me and he said, I saw the whole thing from the altar. And I didn't feel like I could say anything. Mm-hmm. But he said, and you don't, wouldn't know this, and I can't tell you a lot, but what I can tell you, she just said to me, I don't think they want me here. I don't think I should come anymore. Mm-hmm. And I thought, wow, how prophetic that the Holy Spirit would have me say, 
I'm so glad you're here. Yeah. Like I didn't, that wasn't me. I, I'm not that clever, <laughs> you know, but the fact that he knew exactly yeah. what needed to be said at that moment. Well, and this is something that, that is really, I think, incumbent upon us, that we tend to view the whole world through our story as if we are the, the our eyes or the camera at the center of this um, this narrative that's going on. And so everyone else around us we see as kind of the, the supporting actors, as it were, in our story. And how I think important it is for us to begin looking at ourselves as if we are the supporting characters in someone else's narrative, that that the the language that we choose prefers the other person, even if we think that it might be silly to not use this word or that, for the sake of that other person and the 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 heartache that they may be feeling at it, uh, whether that be because of um, because of trauma, whether it be because of socioeconomic status, whether it be because of race that we say, I'm going to prefer the other person and put myself in the shoes of the, the bit part so that I can elevate their story and, and allow them to experience what Christ promised, life and life abundantly. You know, and that's, that's our opportunity if we choose to take it. Mm-hmm. I'll admit there are people who don't like the whole uh, sign of peace, and it's gone completely away during COVID. But I'm one of those people who, when there is a sign of peace, I tend to look around and see who doesn't have anyone to say hello to them. Yeah. And I make a point to say hello to them. And I've actually had people come up to me afterwards and say, do I know you? And I said, <laughs> not yet. And they said, no one ever notices when I'm here. No one ever says hello to me. And I'm like, mm-hmm. well, I'm glad that changed. Yeah. Because, you know, they are... If we continue to like people feel like they don't have a place with us, you know, and it, and I always tell people, I said, it's not like I did anything extraordinary there. Trust right. me. That, I mean, that it isn't really hard stuff. It's like, wow, let's show some compassion and respect their human dignity. That's really what we're going for here. Yeah. You, you asked me, like, some of the other things that happen in church. It's even thinking about how some of our policies work. At the church that's near me, they have annually a anointing of the sick mass and you're supposed to let the office know if you're planning to come so they have some idea of how many people are coming and the person who's in charge called me one day and she said well you signed up uh this is for people who are actually sick kathy (laughs) and i'm like okay yeah i get that well you're gonna have to tell me what it is that you have and I said, well, you know what? Father actually knows what I'm dealing with. And if you really have a problem with this, you can certainly talk to Father about it. You know, but so there was this, I walked in and I had prisoners stop me say, Kathy, this is for people who are sick. You really shouldn't be here. Yeah. And I'm like, okay, thank you very <laughs> much. And so it's that continual, make a name tag. And it's like, Maybe I really don't want to make a name tag. Maybe I don't really want to call that much attention to myself. Yeah. And, and what was particularly interesting at one point was someone took my picture as Father was anointing me, and it ran in the uh, bulletin. Yeah. And it wasn't a, I, I think they looked at it and said, well, Kathy won't care. She's always very willing to do <laughs> a lot of things. But it was a moment of, wow. Like, there are times where people really should be allowed to have some privacy and confidentiality. Mm -hmm. Right. And 
you know, and someone said to me, well, do we put science up? If you're mentally ill, come in. I'm like, uh, no, because nobody's coming to that side. Let me tell you. Right. I said, but I noticed that in the bathrooms and other places, they have signs uh, on the back side of the doors going, experiencing this. Here's a number in which you can call. Yeah. Maybe it's something that's a simple sign that's up on the bulletins. The fact that we actually include in our petitions and acknowledge abuse victims, acknowledge trauma survivors, people who've experienced violence, because they don't typically hear about themselves at mass. It's like something that no one ever talks about. So you've. I love what Deacon uh, Tom Lampert said. That he goes, you know. Mental illness is the no casserole disease. If I broke my leg, they bring me a casserole. Hmm. If you know someone in my family died, they bring me a casserole. If someone I have died of suicide or has been diagnosed with depression, mama's the word and no one's speaking to you. You're now being avoided like the plague. Yeah. You and your family. And that's something we need to get much better at. So you're working on this this uh, document, this book on being trauma aware. Uh, how do we get a hold of that? Well, I have to finish writing it first, and then as soon as I do, I will uh, make sure that you have get access at that point. But it, it's a process. Honestly, I was at, at adoration one night, and I just heard the Lord say very clear, clearly, you're going to write a book, and it's going to be titled Trauma-Informed Parishes. You got it? Okay, go. We're talking today and with... so that is literally what I've been working on. Yeah, we're talking today with Kathy Lins. That book that's coming out hopefully very soon is Trauma-Informed Parishes. We'll put a link up on our social media as soon as we get it. Kathy, thank you again for joining us today. Thank you. If you missed any part of the conversation or you know someone who would benefit from this, I want to encourage you to go to OutsideTheWalls.com. There you'll find all of our archives. We also have more to this conversation with Kathy available to those who support the show through Patreon. While you're there at OutsideTheWalls.com, take a look in the top right-hand corner of the page. You'll find a link that says support the show hyphen Patreon. For as little as $5 a month, you can have access to this extra segment and all of our extra segments. I'd love to have you as part of that support community. Let's go ahead now and turn our attention to our readings from scripture and from church history. That's the sound of our Verbum library launching up. You can get your Verbum library at verbum.com. We're turning our attention now to Psalm 23, because as I thought about Kathy's story, this this picture of needing a place of safety, even if it's a place you can't go, just a place in your mind or a person in your mind that represents safety in the midst of that trauma, uh, this is the scripture that came to my mind. The Lord is my shepherd. There is nothing I lack. In green pastures, he makes me lie down. To still waters, he leads me. He restores my soul. He guides me along right paths for the sake of his name. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff comfort me. You set a table before me in front of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Indeed, goodness and mercy will pursue me all the days of my life. I will dwell in the house of the Lord for endless days. 
That reading comes from Psalm 23. And I've always pictured that as being um, a comforting psalm, but not necessarily a, a, a psalm that we would pray as an assurance to ourselves, right? I, I've tended to think of this psalm as being um, an acknowledgement of uh, and coming from a place of security and confidence. And in light of Kathy's story today, I began reading this and wondering if this might be, might just be a, a psalm of request, uh, looking in, in faith and trusting in God's goodness, and then acknowledging that and speaking it, even maybe if you aren't quite sure, is that place of safety that in the midst of coming into the valley of the shadow of death, here David says, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, kind of looking to the left and to the right and to see it looming large. And he says, I'll fear no evil for you are with me. This prayer of reminding ourselves of God's presence is something that could be so very helpful. And, um, If this is something that you have wrestled with and you're looking for your safe place, I encourage you, perhaps this is a place to start. Let's go ahead and turn now our attention to our reading from Church History, which today comes from a sermon by St. Peter Chrysologus, whose feast day we celebrated on July 30th. A virgin conceived, bore a son, and yet remained a virgin. This is no common occurrence, but a sign No reason here but God's power, for he is the cause and not nature. It is a special event not shared by others. It's divine, not human. Christ's birth was not necessity, but an expression of omnipotence, a sacrament of piety for the redemption of men. He who made man without generation from pure clay made man again, and was born from a pure body. The hand that assumed clay to make our flesh deigned to assume a body for our salvation, that the Creator is in His creature, and God is in the flesh, brings dignity to man without dishonor to Him who made Him. Why then, man, are you so worthless in your own eyes? and yet so precious to God? Why render yourself such dishonor when you are honored by Him? Why do you ask how you were created and do not seek to know why you were made? Was not this entire visible universe made for your dwelling? It was for you that the light dispelled the overshadowing gloom. For your sake, was the night regulated and the day measured. And for you were the heavens embellished with the varying brilliance of the sun, the moon, and the stars. The earth was adorned with flowers, groves, and fruit, and the constant marvelous variety of lovely things was created in the air, the fields, and the seas for you. Lest sad solitude destroy the joy of God's new creation. And the Creator still works to devise things that can add to your glory. He has made you in His image that you might in your person 
make the invisible creator present on earth. He has made you his legate so that the vast empire of the world might have the Lord's representative. Then, in his mercy, God assumed what he made in you. He wanted now to be truly manifest in man, just as he had wished to be revealed in men as in an image. Now he would be in reality what he had submitted to be in symbol. And so, Christ is born that by his birth he might restore our nature. He became a child, was fed, and grew, that he might inaugurate the one perfect age to remain forever as he had created it. He supports man, that man might no longer fall. And the creature he had formed of earth, he now makes heavenly. And what he had endowed with a human soul, he now vivifies to become a heavenly spirit. In this way, he fully raised man to God and left in him neither sin, nor death, nor travail, nor pain, nor anything earthly, with the grace of our Lord Christ Jesus, who lives and reigns with the Father in the unity of the Holy Spirit, now and forever, and for all ages of eternity. Amen. That reading comes from a homily by St. Peter Chrysologus. And what I want to leave you with today is this. If you are a person who's experienced trauma and doesn't look at the world as if God has anything good for you, he has everything good for you. He's present to you, and he has made himself available and given all of creation for your benefit. If you're a person who hasn't gone through trauma, then I want you to hear that he has made you his legate. You are a representative of Christ. You're his emissary to this world. And so, Christ became man to redeem our nature. He became man to be present with us. He put his image in us, and he has elevated us to himself. This is the gospel. This is who we ought to be as we come forward out of this quarantine and begin to imagine what church will be. This is it to recognize the dignity of the human person in ourselves and in others, to recognize Christ's desire to be with us and to reconcile us to himself. And above all things, above all things, to recognize Christ's goal for us. Having made us in his image, he now vivifies us to become a heavenly spirit. He raises us to free us from sin and from death and from pain, and from travail. Let us turn now and offer ourselves fully to him. That's all the time we have this week. Thank you so much for tuning in. The show was brought to you by Tina and Phil Parker and all of those who support the show through Patreon. Go to OutsideTheWalls.com, click that Patreon link in the top corner, and join their numbers. Until next week, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Peace.